For the past month or so, we've been in a series of conversations uh, about how the scriptures give us a, a clear vision uh, for our identity as a church. We're, we're talking about it, things in a little bit different, not just our individual identities, but our corporate identity. Because, you know, sometimes we spend time talking about, you know, who I am and who you are as a child of God, us as individuals. Uh, you know, we are somebody who is adopted, you know, we're saved, we're whatever else. Uh, but we want to talk a little bit in this series about us, who we are, and how the Bible conceives of this, this us thing that we have going on. Because the church is, is way more uh, than just a weekly, you know, uh, pr- preaching and worship event. Amen? As, we, as we've been seeing over the last month or so, the, the church is the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ, right? This, this church is the unstoppable announcement of the kingdom of God. It's, it's biblical justice in action. And by the way, today is also uh, special. Today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. That season, that, that 40 days that leads up to uh, Easter, uh, is kind of a time of preparation and prayer as we prepare our hearts for Easter. And I know uh, not everybody does the Lent thing. That's perfectly okay. Um, it's not like there's a Bible verse saying thou shalt observe Lent um, any more than thou shalt observe Christmas or Easter. Did you know that's not in the Bible? Yeah, that's just something that was uh, passed down to us by uh, our, the, our church fathers. It's like a gift from the church to us. But for many of us, especially some of us like myself who you know, were raised Protestant, and we didn't really have Lent, uh, Lent has become something that has been a, a wonderful rediscovery uh, and it's kind of like, it, imagine if, if like your, your grandmother or someone left you a home and you went up in that attic one day and you found up there this like dusty old lamp, right? And it was like got cobwebs all over it and you brought it downstairs and you dusted it off and you fixed the wiring and you put a fresh light bulb in there and it like gives off this beautiful light that like just brightens the, the room more than anything you've ever seen before. That's kind of the way uh, Lent is for me. It's a, it's a gift. It's, it's a gift from the church. Like I said, it's not like in the Bible, but it's a gift from the church uh, handed down from our spiritual fathers. And it's got roots going all the way back uh, to the very start of the early church. There's records of the very earliest church going through these periods uh, from fasting and prayer and preparation, uh, way before there were, you know, popes and holy Roman emperors and that sort of thing. And, and you know, a lot of us know, you kind of know the drill with Lent. It's, it's often said it's about fasting, prayer, getting closer to God. And I'm all for those practices. I, I, I do those practices myself. But today I also want us to keep in mind, a, uh, suggest another lens through which we can experience this season. Uh, and that is the lens of action. The lens of action, of engagement and transforming the world that we live in through our, our personal testimony. So, so it's not just a season of personal growth, but it's a, it's a time to really make a difference around us. You know, when Jesus spent those 40 days in the desert. He spent those 40 days in prayer and fasting. That's, by the way, that's what the 40 days of Lent are based out of. Jesus spent those 40 days, and those 40 days also harken back to the 40 years of Israel spent in the desert. When he spent those 40 days in the desert, um, how many of you know he was not like on a spa retreat, right? He wasn't just like, you know, Instagramming, guys, I'm having such a time of spiritual fulfillment out here, you know. Um, no, he, was, he wasn't just withdrawing from the world. He was engaged in spiritual warfare, right? You read those, read what was going on there. He was 
preparing uh, for a mission that would change the world. And this really makes what we're going to talk about today even more relevant as we look. We're going to look at a parable of Jesus, one of my favorite ones, because it's just so mysterious and cool. It's in Matthew 13. Uh, And it's part of our ongoing conversations about who we are as a church and what we're called to do and to be. And this is a parable. We talked about this, uh, we talked a little bit about this parable three or four years ago, but it forces us to ask uh, some questions, like how we can be agents of change in the world without getting caught up in the world's battles. Because there's like a tension there, isn't there? And we're, we're always trying to like navigate that, that tension uh, to, to manage that. How do we balance being in the world but not of the world? How do we be a light to the world without adding to the fueling the fires of the world. You know what I mean? Uh, And it's a super tricky balance, but those are actually fundamentally very Lenten questions. And so the timing for this series couldn't be any better. And and by the way, if you do uh, practice Lent, uh, that's great. And I encourage you, I hope you have a blessed Lent. Just remember, it's not just about like giving up chocolate or, you know, giving up Facebook or whatever, or sitting around contemplating in a pile of ashes or something like that. We want to turn our ashes into action. That's what I'm, I'm really wanting to encourage us to do. We want to be salt and light to a desperate world. So today, today's going to be glorious. I got some good slides for you. Uh, you're going to walk out of here so fired up. Uh, amen. You're going to say to yourself, self, I cannot wait for part two of this. I cannot wait to hear what else that gray-haired middle-aged guy was talking about. Because this is a part, is a two-parter, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we're going to end on a cliffhanger today. It's going to be amazing. Amen. Matthew 13. Here we go. Let's dive in. We're in verse 24. Now, we're kind of interrupting this whole incredible riff that Jesus has been in the middle of. But he says this. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while he was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed what? Weeds among the wheat and then went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. Now, I know uh, most of us in here probably aren't farmers. Uh, I've tried to grow a little bit, and just about everything I grow became weeds. That's like all that seems to grow. It grow they grow very easily. Um, but because most of us aren't farmers, I, I went on. Uh, I found this really fancy tool that um, uh, Bible scholars use called Google, and uh, so I found this picture for you, uh, and it shows wheat. You got wheat. There on the left, and you got these uh, weed, this weed that's real common in the Middle East on the right there, and it's called darnel, 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 I think it's darnel. Um, and evidently, this was like a real thing that would happen back then. Like you would plant your field between, like rival farmers would have, you know, these issues, and you'd sow your seed, and then an enemy would come and scatter weeds in your field. And the issue was, as you can see, that the weeds and the wheat are indistinguishable in the beginning. You couldn't tell them apart. It wasn't until they grew closer to harvest when the wheat, you know, took on that sort of, you know, nice brownie wheat color um, that you could really see the differences. And so Jesus goes on here. He says this, the owner's servants came to the owner. This is a parable, remember. Came to the owner and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? The servant replies, an enemy did this. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, and this is so key. No, because while you were pulling the weeds, you may also uproot the wheat with them. And then this is the key line. Let both, what? 
grow together until harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters first to collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And then after this, Jesus tells some more parables. He, he goes on, and then later the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, you know, that wheat and the weeds thing, explain that to us. And this is one of those really cool places, he doesn't do this all the time, where Jesus is like, oh, I'll explain it. And he like gives us a very nice explanation. He says this, he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. Now, the son of man is a reference to Daniel. It's, it's something that Jesus would often call himself uh, to, uh, to refer to himself as the Messiah. Um, it was a reference from Daniel. So Jesus is the one who sows the good seed. The field is the world. The world. Notice the field's not the, the church. It's not like our inner souls. The world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. Pretty simple. Believers. Hopefully you and me. The weeds are the people of the evil one. So that's lost people. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. Angels. So, man, Jesus, he just like really makes it really simple for us. Um, and what he does then is he quotes from Daniel here and Oh, man, we could spend a lot of time on what he says here next in verse 40. He, uh, we won't, but he says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And whoever has ears, let them here. Now, if you're curious about that kind of like some judgmenty language that's going on there, uh, I am hoping later uh, to later in, in the year to do a little bit deeper dive into, we'll spend some time talking about heaven and hell and earth and those sorts of things. We don't have time right now. But this actually isn't the main uh, point. It's not the predominant point that Jesus is making in this parable. The point of the parable is found in two questions that the owner's servants ask the owner. Two questions. Question number one, where did the weeds come from? And what was his answer? An enemy did this. And then the second question. Oh my goodness, this is so important. Do you want us to go and pull the weeds up? And his answer is, let them both what? Grow together until harvest. And then who? Others, not you, others will separate them. I've heard a lot of interesting explanations for this parable and talking about it. Uh, I've heard it said that this is what Jesus is talking about here is the true church versus the false church, right? Like there's some of us here who are weeds and some of us here who are wheat. And, you know, hopefully you're not a weed. Um, others have used this parable to even talk about uh, the, the Old and New Testaments. Like, one, the, you know, the, one is the Judaism versus Christianity. And none of that is what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is asking... Um, and answering actually a very Jewish question of the day. Remember, he, all of his parables that he gives, he's answering Israel questions. He's talking to Israelites about Israel, um, and we some glean some really good insight to them. But he's answering questions that they have. And so the question that they have, my friends, is why, Jesus, if you were the Messiah, is there still evil in the world? Why is there still evil? 
Because Jesus at this point in his ministry, he has been doing all kinds of messianic things. He's been making it really clear to his disciples. He's been saying things. And those paying attention that he was more than just a prophet. Right? And the natural question that people would have is, okay, if you're the Messiah, then why is there still evil? Because the understanding was, if you were a Jew in the first century, the understanding was that when the Messiah came, evil would finally and once and for all be dealt with. It was going to be dealt with, and the, the popular assumption was that the Messiah was going to be the one who comes, he deals with evil, he wipes it out entirely, eradicates it with some good, fierce, terrible judgment on sinners and pagans. And what, Jesus, what does Jesus do when he walks around? None of those things. He eats with sinners. He loves on them, right? He, he heals sick people. He, he fusses at Pharisees who were the ones doing everything right, right? Uh, he confronts the religious leaders. And this is almost nothing like they were expecting from a Messiah. And so foremost among people's questions or Jesus, why aren't you dealing with sinners? Why are you welcoming them? And why are, why are you welcoming them into your movement? Why aren't you judging them and casting them out? And so from our perspective now, thousands of years later, we still ask the same questions. The, the, the big question, the problem of evil, you know, why, where does evil come from? And the answer he gives is an enemy did this. An enemy did this. Now, um, friends, I'm going to delve into some shocking theological controversy here. I know, big surprise. Um, but what I want to suggest is that here, and in many other places in Scripture, Jesus paints a picture where there is actually other wills besides God's being done in the world. That there is a real enemy of God. There's a real enemy of God. That the devil is real. The principalities and powers are real. And that not everything that happens on earth is God's will. And that's controversial in some circles, right? But that's why Jesus actually instructs us to pray, Father, in the heavens, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That sort of presupposes that it's not already being done, right? We're told to pray that his will be done. You know, uh, this year, 2024, Generations Church is going to turn 40 years old. Isn't that something, that awesome? Uh, we, we were founded back in 1984 under the name Grace Christian Fellowship. How many Grace Christian Fellowshippers do we still have? Look at the name. All right. Look at All right. My old time tribe. Good deal. Um, yeah. So we've been here a while. Now, in 40 years, you see a lot. We've seen a lot of uh, wonderful miracles happen in our community. Um, we've also witnessed, you know, some sad tragedies. We've, we've seen healings by the thousands, literally by the thousands. Uh, and we've also watched friends and family pass away, haven't we? Um, and I remember uh, several years ago, there was a friend of mine here in this church who, who got sick rather suddenly, and he passed away. It was awful. He was way too young. He had a family. And I remember hearing these very sweet, well-meaning people who came up and said, well, this must be God's will. Um, and I was less mature at the time. And I know that's a low bar. But, <laughs> but I think I graciously, you know, was like, okay, thank you. Amen. Um, but in my head, I'm screaming. In my heart, I'm yelling at him. 
No, it isn't. It can't be, right? This is not God's will. Genesis 1 and 2 is God's will. Revelation 21 and 22 is God's will, right? Disease and car accidents and, and gun shootings and dying from COVID is not God's will, not even remotely, Amen. right? Death is not his will. So there's this thing I think we do in some Christian circles to sound, to sound nice and to sound religious or maybe to comfort ourselves. We, we actually attribute the work of the enemy to God, we say, well, God must have did this. And I just want to say, this couldn't be more clear in the scriptures. When you look into the world, God's will is not the only will being done. Right. I mean, if God's will explained everything, then why did Jesus come and heal people, right? Because those, those people would have been sick by the will of God. So he'd be walking around thwarting the will of God, right? And so when we look at the carnage of the world today, it's really tempting sometimes to say, well, God's behind it all. <laughs> And uh, that's not the picture Jesus paints at all. It's not the picture. So if you're sick, if you're here and you're struggling, or you know, you, if you're in deep poverty today, or you're, you're struggling with depression today or something like that, or some, and someone comes along and says, well, this must be God's will for you, as if God were giving these things, no way. I just want to tell you, he's not because he loves you. He's a good father, right? And a father wouldn't do that, right? Now, can he use those things? Absolutely. Can he redeem those things in your life? Yeah, absolutely, God can make beautiful things out of the dirt, right? But are they from him? Jesus gives us really good evidence to confidently say, no, an enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. There's an enemy at work in the world. And so even though when we look at the, the ministry of Jesus, he was Israel's Messiah. He wasn't the one they were thinking of, but he was the Messiah. And, and we see that really his biggest mission wasn't really just making sure he went around and dealt with all the symptoms of evil, but it was dealing with the root of evil, right? I mean, Jesus was going to absorb evil. He was going to conquer it. He's going to take it on himself, the worst of it on the cross. And in the meantime, what did he do? He gives us glimpses of this already not yet kingdom. He, he, he's going to heal. He's going to redeem. He's going to raise people from the dead. He does these beautiful things. He opens the blind eyes, but he didn't do it for everybody. So why is there still evil in the world? Jesus says, because there is an enemy still at work. So for us today, we shouldn't be surprised at evil, right? The kingdom that Jesus brought, uh, it hasn't yet replaced evil. But what the kingdom does is it comes in the midst of it. He describes it like yeast in the middle of the dough, right? It's sometimes it is this slow, expanding, growing, beautiful thing. But it's unstoppable, right? He comes as a seed, right, that grows in the ground. He comes in the middle of human darkness, and the kingdom comes, and we're invited as the church to participate in the kingdom. Amen? Does that make sense so far? All right. The second question the, in, the, in the parable that is asked and we ask is, God, do you want us to go pull the weeds up ourselves? And Jesus has a really clear and surprising answer to the disciples, I think, and to the disciples now. And that answer is no. Okay, well, that begs the question, like, well, why not, right? And I think there's two answers that are kind of implied here. One is because often, as you saw from that picture, often the weeds and the wheat are indistinguishable. And you don't know which is which, right? The, the weeds of the world don't walk around with a big sign that says, I'm a weed, pull me, right? You know, or I'm wheat, yay. You know, we, we don't know, 
because we're not God. But here's the second thing. Even if you did, even if you were just like blessed with this supernatural ability to tell the weeds from the wheat, often he says in pulling out the weeds, you will harm the wheat. So we let God take care of it. This is so important, friends, because keep in mind the, the, the subject that we've been talking about. We're talking about the church. What's our role as the church? What Jesus isn't saying, this is important. What Jesus isn't saying is, well, you know, just evil is always going to be with you guys, so just be passive about it. Jesus was never passive. He was never passive. Even when he's allowing himself to die, he, he said, hey, I'm giving my life freely. I could call down 72,000 angels if I wanted to. You know those really scary things that keep having to say fear not when they appear? I could call 72,000 of them and they would like go to war for me. I could do that, but I'm not going to do that. He was never passive. He was confrontational. He was gracious and healing. He was delivering, but never passive. So what we're being invited to isn't passive, but rather it's patient. It's in, we're invited into patience. And so being patient for a church, it means uh, we allow God to be God and we reorient our, ourselves and our mission around this slow, inexorable work of the kingdom, that yeast that's growing in the dough, right? Rather than fixating all the time on immediate and measurable outcomes. So trusting in God's judgment his timing, not leaping prematurely to, you know, root out the evil in the land that's going to end up doing more harm to the good in the process. I got to tell you, friends, this, this confronts me a bit because when Jesus says to his tribe, let them grow together, refrain from pulling the weeds out yourself. I think there's a bit of us that, you know, we want to do some weed pulling. I, I, I understand. Wouldn't you agree? We do. And, and that's kind of what... Uh, you know, is behind a lot of the culture wars today. That sort of feeds that narrative. Those are the bad people out there. If we just got rid of them or dealt with them, man. And Jesus invites us to take an entirely different posture. And it's one that requires something this church knows a lot about, faith. Faith in God, that he will do what he says he will do. And not pretend that God doesn't exist and it's all up to us. Not passive, no, 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 we resist evil. Absolutely, we fight against it. But how do we fight? Well, we're going to fight the same way Jesus did. We don't retaliate. We don't use coercion or violence. We bless instead of insult, right? That's what patience does. It means that we don't have to control the outcomes or, or bring the kingdom or force it into people. It means that we can go about our work. And, and what is our work in the church? Our work, he says, is caring for the field. What's the field? The world. We care for the field. We care for the world. Our work is not separating the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the weeds. And there's an, in, there's an impulse these days, and today more strongly than ever, to identify the enemy. And, and notice who the enemy is in this parable. Who does he say is the enemy? He said, an enemy has done this. Who is it not? The weeds. Isn't, the weeds aren't the enemy. Did you get that? It's the devil. It's the principalities and powers that sowed the weeds. The weeds are not our enemy. And so, guys, it's so easy. And this reminds me, as I was just reading this this week, I was like, I never thought about that before. We read this and we instantly read ourselves into the parable, don't we? We, we go, whew, 
I'm so glad I'm a wheat, right? We're wheat, glad I'm not a weed. But remember, in the real world, there is not a human being alive that was born wheat. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? We're born into sin. We all start out as weeds. So for the church to take care of the field, and the field is the whole world, it's not just to take care of the good righteous people, the good righteous wheat, right? It's also in the hopes of transforming weeds into wheat. By the way, that's discipleship. And so we're invited into this really kind of weird posture where we're resisting evil We fight against injustice and deceit, and we work hard to embody the kingdom. We want to be that light on the hill and salt of the earth. But we do so in patience, waiting and letting both grow together. And it just feels wrong. You know, those those workers of the field had to feel like, boy, this just feels weird, right? Because what do you do? When you're out there watering the field, and you're fertilizing the field and tending the field, well, what's happening to the weeds? They're getting watered and tended. They're getting blessed, right? We, we, we let them both grow together. We refrain from identifying the weeds. We try and try to pull them out, which is just an odd thing to hold in, in tension. But we have to if we're going to work for the good of the field. So what's that look like? Well, here's one example I found. This guy, uh, Paul. Yeah, this, this will preach right here, ladies and gentlemen. Paul's dealing in this one uh, scripture we're going to look at with this massive sin in the church. This is a sin like a, not even non-Christians would tolerate back then, yet it's being tolerated and celebrated in the church. And there are times absolutely in the church that you have to deal with something that's you know, super egregious. But notice what Paul says here. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those where? Inside. God will judge those outside. Expel this wicked person from among you. That word wicked is the, the Greek word poneros, and it's, it's not just like an unsaved person. It's not just a lost person. It, it's a particular wicked. It means malicious. It's like, it's like a wicked that's causing pain. It's someone in there like causing pain. He's like, get, get rid of this person. They're not helping you. Um, and they're not, you know, seeking Jesus either. So, so this, is, this is very confronting for me uh, because I know that this afternoon I could get the most like clicks and likes if, if I decide to just go on an online rant, right, uh, against the ungodly world. I could say something against the ungodly world and I would get so many responses like, preach it, pastor, truth, you got it, right? You know, it'd be true, right? Man, I get so many more followers. It's, it's so tempting. Um, but what about this? This is shocking. What if we expect non-Christians to act like non-Christians? And, and we expect Christians to act like Christians. Um, what about that? What if we just start there? What if we just start there? Um, you know, if we're, if we're like, hey, if you're a follower of Jesus, let's grow in holiness, right? Let's grow in patience. Let's grow in faithfulness. Let's not expect people who haven't said yes to Jesus to somehow embrace the teachings and words of Jesus, right? And his example. If you're, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, hey, let me tell you how good he is. But being patient means we take care of our own house first, right? Put your house in order, as they say. We're going to focus our critical eye on how we can be more like Christ. 
And we're going to talk more. I told you this is a two-parter. We're going to talk more next week about discernment and judgment. Where, how does that come in, right? Do we just uncritically receive everything or, you know, are we not, we're not to judge the world? Are we, you know, do we judge within the church tribe? We're going to talk about it next time. All right, baby. So you're like, man, I want me some judgment and discernment next week. All right. Next week. Uh, for now, we're wrestling with this question. What does it look like to let the weeds and the wheat grow together Well, it means the posture of the church is one of patience, patience. It means the action of the church toward the world isn't one of judgment, Uh, because we're just going to expect the world to act like the world. So it's not judgment. It's one of love and service, which is going to be really weird and surprising, and blessing. It's things like in Matthew, where Jesus says, in the same way Jesus told his first disciples, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. Or how about this one? You can Instagram this one, 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. Hallelujah, I love that. And work with your hands so that your daily life might win the respect of outsiders and so you will not be dependent on anybody. Or from old Peter, he says, live such good lives among the pagans. And the pagans here isn't like a pejorative. It just means non-God people, pagans. Live such good lives among the non-Jesus people. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That's our work. So think about it. Jesus says, don't pull up the weeds. Let it all grow. So that means when we water the field, we fertilize the field, that blessing is getting applied to the whole world, weeds included. They're going to feel the blessing. The way Jesus has framed this, it is literally impossible not to bless the world. Amen. Isn't that true? But see, if we, if we misunderstand our role, and we're like Grim Reaper walking through the world, you know, with scythe and sickle and separating and all the good people from the bad, well, in real terms, what do we do? We end up harming, doing harm to Christians, number one, which is so rampant with spiritual abuse today. So many, we're leaving so many Christians in our wake with all the spiritual abuse today. But not only that, we risk dooming generations of people into remaining as weeds because of the power and control posture that we've taken instead of loving and blessing the world, which allows God to transform the world, to transform them from weed to wheat, just as you and I have been transformed. Amen? So friends, I know there's a lot here. Holy moly, there's so much. Home life, I got a feeling is going to be lively this week. Uh, But what an incredible image that Jesus paints for us of servants who want to go and pull the weeds. And an owner says, no, let them grow together, not being passive in the face of evil, but rather patient. A God who says everything will come to light. Everything will be dealt with. All shall be well. All shall be well and all manner of things shall be well in the words of Julian of Norwich there. And in the meantime, our job isn't just to sit and shake our fists at the world, which let's admit it, that is a soul sucking behavior, isn't it? That is exhausting. It's hopeless. It's fear inducing. What a pastime. But rather what our job is to build an alternative 
to the, to the priorities and the values of the world systems around us. So when people come into the community of Jesus followers, when they come through these doors or they encounter you, your neighbor encounters you in the street, when they see Jesus in people, it actually looks like something far different. They recognize something very different and that this, this, this beautiful church, this community that we have here that we're a part of, when we're exercising this is where we exercise our discernment, right? This is where we exercise our discernment and where we encourage and we sharpen one another. We're building something that is, that is beautiful. And, and by the way, just to harken back to uh, that word about Lent, if you are uh, joining me and participating in Lent over the next 40 days, I encourage you, however you choose to engage with it, remember the goal of Lent is not to arrive at Easter with a sense of like spiritual accomplishment, but the the goal is to arrive transformed. It's to arrive transformed, more like Christ in his love, more like Christ in his humility, his power. And and those practices of Lent, you know, we're very traditionally are fasting and prayer and uh, almsgiving. They're not ends in themselves, but they are, they're tools to cultivate a heart that beats in rhythm with God's heart. Amen. Amen. So friends, let us go out there, not with our scythe and sickle in hand, but let us go out there and be a blessing. May we live in such a way to the outside world that when you and I breathe our last and we depart this this planet and we die, that the world we leave behind says of us, we are glad, we are better that they had been born. We are better for it, for them having been here. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Hallelujah. Father God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your inexhaustible patience with us, Lord. We thank you. I'm so grateful, Lord God, that when Jesus was walking this earth, Lord, we see a, we see a Messiah that didn't claim glory for himself or he wasn't building some kind of spectacular religious resume or gathering some kind of spectacular conquering army. Instead, he was lowly and humble and he was blessing people. And he confronted, Lord God, false religiosity. He was, he was welcoming the brokenhearted, Lord God. May we be that way. God, may we be a people that are so committed to Jesus of Nazareth, not the Jesus that we've constructed in our culture, but the Jesus of Nazareth, that we begin to look like him. So God, I I help us as we go out and we want to pull weeds. May we obey you, Lord God. May we be patient and may we trust in you. May we work hard at creating something here in our church that is an alternative to what's happening in the world. And to that end, Lord God, we ask for your blessing in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and all God's Field workers said, amen, amen. Well, our, your, our prayer partners, if you guys will come forward right now, uh, if there's anything that we can pray with you about, these guys would love to pray with you. We encourage you to come forward. If there's anything going on in your life, you need somebody to just stand in faith with you and pray. They would love to share that with you and uh, share that burden and take it to the Lord because he does miracles. He does do miracles, amen. And uh, if you want to say yes to Jesus today for the first time to take that step, they would love to lead you in that step as well. What a wonderful thing to do. And we love you guys so much. Will you rise to your feet as I speak a benediction on you today?
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of the Father, and may the communion of the Holy Spirit be all over you this week until we get to be together again. And grace and peace be with you. We love you guys. Bye-bye.